Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show, where we interview fighters and firebrands on the political and cultural battlefields. With us today is Rabbi Stephen Prusansky. He now lives in Israel, but served as head of Congregation B'nai Yeshurun in Teaneck, New Jersey, for 25 years, from 1994 to 2020. He received his bachelor's degree from Columbia University, his legal degree from Yeshiva University, and his smicha from Yeshiva B'nai Torah of Far Rockaway. He maintains a blog at RabbiPruzanski.com and is the author of six books, including Road to Redemption, which was just published last month. Rabbi Prusansky, welcome to the program. Elliot, thank you very much. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Let me begin by asking you about the recent resignation of Avi Moaz from Israel's cabinet. Moaz, for those of my listeners who don't know, is head of the Noam Party, which champions Jewish family values. And he resigned because he said Netanyahu broke his word and has not helped him form a national Jewish identity authority. This authority, among other things, was supposed to ensure that mother and father appear on Israeli government forms rather than parent one and parent two, as has been the case since 2020 in some divisions of the Israeli government, if I'm not mistaken. By the way, I don't think even the American government forms, say, parent one and parent two. So Israel seems to be taking the lead on this, unfortunately. In any event, what do you make of this resignation? And does it tell us anything about support for preserving Jewish values in Israel? Avi Maoz is not the first minister or deputy minister lied to by Benjamin Netanyahu. He has a history of governance in a way that leaves a lot of enemies in his tracks, which is one reason why he's suffering today all this opposition. Uh, he resigned on principle when he realized that he is now in an assignment without authority, and as a deputy minister, he was not allowed to propose bills in the Knesset. So he was basically hamstrung. So now he remains part of the coalition, and he'll be able to introduce bills in the Knesset, including reversing this decision by the health minister in the last government. Nitzan Horowitz uh, is, was a homosexual, and he wants to further their agenda. Uh, so therefore, it's almost embarrassing to them the concept of a traditional family, that there's a father and a mother. And that's why he instituted this change in the forms. Now, that precipitated a wave of disobedience on the part of many, many Israelis, including yeshiva students, who then began to boycott Magen David Adom because uh, they didn't want to participate in the charade of denying that they have a mother and a father. He was trying to reverse that as part of his uh, domain of strength and Jewish identity. But again, with Netanyahu, the pattern has always been that he speaks very nicely, very eloquently, and it could be that his heart is even in the right place. But when it comes actually to implementing policies that will further a traditional ideology, from that he generally demurs in the hope of somehow maintaining his coalition and power, but not accomplishing what he really was elected to do. Horowitz is the Attorney General of Israel? No, Horowitz was the previous health minister under the Bennett-Lapid government. And in that capacity, he was the one who ordered, based on a Supreme Court decision, but he was the one who ordered hospitals in Israel that they cannot prevent Chomets from entering on Pesach 
and he's the one who extended additional rights and privileges and showered the uh, Rainbow Coalition of Groups, LGBT, etc., with money. And one of the things that he did was also change the form in Magen David Adom, Israel's Red Cross, that those who are donating blood or otherwise involved in government activities, they can no longer write who their mother is and who their father is, but just number their parents one and two. I think the Justice Ministry also changed their forms, if I'm not mistaken, no? It could very well be. I don't know, but for the sake of conformity, they would. But it's uh, preposterous on its face. A person has a mother, a person has a father. Right. And also, I mean, I can't imagine... With all of its problems, Israel is a traditional country, more traditional than your average country. I'd imagine probably 70 to 80 percent, if not more than that, I'm giving you a very low number, it might even be 90 or 95 percent, would say that no mother and father actually should be on these forms, not parent one and parent two. So when you have to Right. So I'm speculating now, but that could be part of his motivation in resigning. He can introduce now a bill in the Knesset to change the forms back to the way they were originally. And this way the coalition can vote on it. And they should attract members of the opposition also. Right. Am I correct, though, in saying that your average Israeli, whether religious or not, is kind of traditionally minded? Yes, I would think so. The number of diehard secular Israelis, non-believers in God, is probably less than 10%. Interesting. But, and I guess, like in America, even though you're saying it's less than 10%, but they have an outsized influence because of their positions in academia and media, etc.? Yes, and the judicial system. Very sad. All right. For the first time in decades, some right-wing politicians in Israel are suggesting amending the law of return so that Jew is clearly defined as halachic Jew. Had this law been amended years ago, Israel wouldn't have half a million Russian non-Jews in its midst today, which has created a major intermarriage problem in Israel. As you pointed out in recent blog posts, more than half of the governing Knesset coalition today is observant. These Knesset members, in other words, can force Netanyahu to change the law of return if they want to. So first of all, will they? And if they're inclined not to, what can the average Jew in Israel and here in America do to pressure them to do so? So let's be clear that the proposed amendment does not conform to halacha. The proposal is actually to get rid of the grandfather clause, which means that someone who had one Jewish grandfather, that even if that grandfather's children were not Jewish, and thus their grandchildren are not Jewish, those grandchildren still have the right to come to Israel as Jews and bring in extended family members as well. And that has proliferated the number of non-Jews in Israel. To conform to halacha, of course, a law of return would state that one is eligible for automatic citizenship as a Jew if one is born of a Jewish mother or is converted according to halacha. But that's not what the proposal says. The proposal actually gets rid of the grandfather clause, but still retains the notion of a Jewish father enabling his children to come to Israel as Jews. So we're not yet on the level of admitting halachic Jews only, but nonetheless, it's a great step forward. Because many of the people coming from Ukraine and Russia In the last few years, I mean, the last year, the percentage of Gentiles is around 70%. You're talking tens of thousands of people, and it adds up, and it does dilute the Jewish character of the state. And I don't doubt that all the pressures that we have in the last two decades, even three decades, to halt the public observance of Shabbat and have public transportation on Shabbat, etc., that's coming about because of the influence of hundreds of thousands of Gentiles 
who really don't want to be Jewish. They want to be Israelis to a great extent, but they don't want to be Jewish. Many of them pray in the Russian Orthodox Church. Their number has uh, grown tenfold in the last 20 years. So if we want to have a Jewish state, the only one on the planet, we have to ensure that those coming in are primarily Jews, period. But here we have the absurdity. I noted in an article last year, President Duda of Poland is married to a woman whose grandfather was Jewish, all right? So that would mean that grandfather's children who are non-Jews could come. President Duda and his wife could come to Israel as Jews. Their child could come as a Jew. And then her husband could come. And before you know it, within a few decades, we're no longer a Jewish state. We're a state of all the nations. And that's not what we bargained for. That's not what we've sacrificed tens of thousands of lives to sustain. And the reason why it's done, by the way, is because there's a growing demographic imbalance in Israel, as you see from the election results. The right-wing, traditional, religious Haredi population is growing in Israel. The left-wing, secular Ashkenazi population is diminishing in Israel. So one way the latter is able to boost their numbers is by increasing the number of Gentiles that they bring in, who obviously are not interested in having a traditional Jewish state. What are the hopes of the more traditionally minded and the religious minded Knesset members pushing this through? And what can we do to pressure them to do the right thing? So they're getting a lot of pressure from American Jewish groups, even though, by the way, your listeners should know that less than 3% of American Olim apply to Israel under the grandfather clause. 97% don't. In Russia, Ukraine, it's the exact opposite. You have a great majority applying under the grandfather clause. So it doesn't really affect the average American Jew directly. And an American Jew who intermarries is doing it willfully. No one's pressuring him to do it. So if you're asking me, if someone has a grandchild in America who's not Jewish, I would say, yeah, it's very sad but they, their father, their grandfather, opted out of the Jewish people by intermarrying. So that's the price you pay. You did something against halacha to sever your ties with the Jewish community, and these are the natural consequences of that severance. Live with them or change it. You change it by, as happened many, many times, the second, third generation realizing they're not Jews according to halacha, they want to be part of the Jewish people, and so they convert according to halacha, and then they're welcome back in the fold. But to have it endlessly pushed down the road and promoted, why not a great-grandfather clause? Why not a great-great-great-grandfather clause? At a certain point, you reach what I like to call the Ancestry.com Jews. Is there anything your average from Jew in America could do? Do parties in Israel respond to emails from, from Jews in America or not really? You can pressure your congressman and your president to butt out. Let's say it in a nicer way. In other words, how Israel defines its rules of citizenship is up to Israel. It's not open to America. If America wants to open up its southern border to millions of illegal aliens, so that's their choice, that's their right. But don't tell Israelis how we should open up our borders to the rest of the world. America is a non-denominational country. 
Israel is not. It's a Jewish state, and therefore the parameters of Israeli citizenship have to be in line with what will further the interests and objectives of having a Jewish state. The whole situation is really so frustrating because, as you point out, the religious parties are not even asking for what they really should be asking for. And you know, I have many family ties to Lubavitch, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe was speaking about this very strenuously and passionately, but he spoke about this in the 1970s when the chance of the religious people doing anything was actually fairly small. Today they have so much more power, and yet they still don't do anything, and you hear very few people talking about it, even very few Lubavitchers talking about it. So the whole situation is really just so frustrating. Right, so the bill will be proposed. The main obstacle to it now is the constant threats of American Jewish leadership that this will cause an irreversible, irreconcilable rift with American Jewry. And look, it's something to be considered. We don't want to turn off Jews from supporting Israel. But let's be frank, the support of Israel by the reform movement in the last two decades has dwindled almost to non-existent. It basically allies itself with either our enemies outright or those who don't really have Israel's interests at heart. They're among the groups that pressure Israel to make it less Jewish and to make concessions to the Arabs and to surrender land. It's been a very long time since any element of the reform movement was, shall I say, progressive enough that they support the Israeli government in trying to retain our possession over the patrimony that God gave us and to make the state more Jewish. So they've been essentially a negative and hostile force to the continuation of Israel as a Jewish state. So I don't know what rift they're talking about, but I will say, and I do believe this, that the average Reformed Jew in America has a love for Israel and the state of Israel, and it's the leadership, which is very, very politicized and allied with the left. They're the ones who are pushing this agenda. In 2014, you suggested shooting at Arabs who throw rocks at Israeli soldiers, destroying and expelling the residents of any Arab village from which two terrorists emerge, and executing Arab terrorists. You and I and everyone normal knows how to end this interminable Arab war against Israel. You end it the same way you end any schoolyard fight against a bully, by pummeling the bully. A better long-term solution might be to expel the Arabs from Israel, a solution that, it's not well known, but it's still a fact, was favored by President Herbert Hoover, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and at least at one point by Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion as well. According to a Pew Research Center poll, nearly half of Israel's population favors this solution. Now, even if this poll is wildly off, and it's hard to believe it would be because Pew Research Center is pretty good at what they do, but supposing it's off by like 25 points. So we're still left with a quarter of Israel's population that supports this solution, which is a huge percentage. And yet, if you even suggest kicking the Arabs out of Israel, you're banned from running from Knesset, and anyone who suggests fighting the Palestinian Arabs the same way America fought against the Japanese in World War II will be portrayed as a monster. How do you see this war ending? Will Arabs be killing Jews in Israel every year for the rest of our lives? Will Israel's leadership ever wake up? And what can we do to help it wake up? Yeah, sad to say, I don't see any permanent end to the conflict on the horizon in the near future, absent Mashiach coming. The problem we're suffering from, I'll tell you in a concise soundbite of seven words, Kahana was right and Rabin was wrong. Now let me explain. 
Kahana was right in that you're not going to have any situation in which a sizable Arab community lives alongside Israel in peace. It's not going to happen. They're absolutists. They've been trained since they emerged into this world that this land is theirs. It's Islamic holy land. Jews can only live here, if at all, as second-class citizens. And therefore, the majority of the population will never reconcile themselves to Israeli sovereignty, even though it's better for them. They know that. That's why they don't leave. On the other hand, it's ingrained in them that the Jews really have no right, and Jews are the devil and the enemy, and must be fought until all eternity. So where Rav Kahana, Hashem Gondomo, erred is that he didn't really have a legitimate or effective means of carrying out his plans. So therefore, he sufficed with just saying it, but it wasn't practical. It was probably more practical in the 80s than it is today. But obviously, we're dealing with the consequences of having this hostile population in our midst. And, you know, they don't care. Their civilians go out and kill our civilians. And we don't recognize that it's a war. It's a war not of armies. It's a war of civilians. And therefore, our civilians are hamstrung and their civilians are celebrated. Ideally, civilians should never be killing civilians. Let armies fight, but that's not how the way our enemies fight. And one reality of the human history is that you don't get to choose your enemy. Your enemies choose you. And that's what we have to deal with. So Kahana was right in the big sense, how to implement it. So that was never his forte. And therefore, the ideas languished and now have been branded as racist and will deal with those consequences. Conversely, Robin was wrong. Wrong in the most immediate sense that you don't bring your enemy into your midst, give them sovereignty and weapons, and hope for the best, which basically was his policy, and that was the catastrophe of Oslo. We brought this on ourselves. We brought the enemy into our heartland. We gave them weapons. As Robin said, you give them weapons, They'll use it against their own people in order to ensure there's no terror. Yeah, great, sure, great theory, Mr. Security. But the fact is, he was wrong, dead wrong. And thousands of Israelis have paid the price for that. And that, to me, is Moreshet Rabin. His legacy is you can't drive on Route 60 without fear of being shot. Can we reverse the consequences of Kahana being right and Rabin being wrong? I don't know. In the short term... There's no will on the population, understandably so, to carry out Kahana's plans. There is a will to reverse Robin's legacy, but nobody really knows how to do it because the Arabs are entrenched where they are. I I think the only way to do it, really, is to make life here so difficult for them that they want to leave. Look, I'll be the first to tell you, there are many fine Arabs. There are many Arabs who prefer to live here because they like the freedoms of Israel. And I'm fine with that. I celebrate that. But there are many who do not. And those many who do not, if it's 10%, then you're talking about a couple hundred thousand people who just want to make it their life's mission to kill Jews. And that should be intolerable to any Jew. Right. And the Kahana solution in many ways, actually, I often say is actually the simpler and the nicer solution. I mean, the, the more messy solution is really just to fight like I said, like, like the Americans fought against the Japanese or against the Germans just to scare the enemy out of its wits. And 
people ask for details. You don't really need details. If I put you and the residents of Hebron and Batayin in a room, you'd figure out different ways of solving the problem. It's not that details don't, don't really matter. If there's a will, there would be a way. Just there is really no will. And partially because I think the Israeli leadership is so hamstrung by this notion that every citizen is, is holy and pure. What I often say, there's never been a less innocent enemy population in the history of warfare. Because if you dropped an American in the middle of Japan or Germany during World War II, he would not be lynched. If you walk with a yarmulke in the middle of Ramallah, you'll be lynched. And lynchings are not done by the police. Lynchings are done by the mob, by regular ordinary people. So, yes, that is anyways, true. But you see, opinion. morality doesn't change because we believe morality is objective. If it was moral for the Americans to kill hundreds of thousands of Japanese civilians in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and elsewhere, as well as in Berlin or Dresden, etc., those cities were pummeled. So I'll, I'll be the first one to say, war should not be, target civilians, period. But when the other side, the enemy civilians, target your civilians, and you hamstring your response so as not to kill their civilians, that asymmetry kills Jews. I want to move on, but before I move on, I'm sure you know that the Maharal actually writes explicitly on the Levian Shrem story that civilians in wartime are legitimate targets. He says wars are fought between nations, not the individuals. And he brings an example of where the Jews fought against Midian. He said that every single Midianite sinned against the Jewish people. He said, of course not, essentially. But it doesn't matter. Midian is a collective. And when you have, fight wars, you fight as a collective. But I, I want to move on. I want to get to a few other things. When you made the suggestion a decade ago to, you know, shoot at ro- Arab rock throwers, I think you also suggested burying Arab terrorists in you know, pigskin or something as another deterrent. Anyways, the Orthodox Union amazingly publicly criticized you. And when it comes to political issues, the OU, I think, is clearly to the left of its base. It often criticizes people on the right, like President Trump, but is very hesitant to criticize people on the left. It aims, at least it seems to me, to please above all the editorial board of the New York Times. And probably it feels it has nothing to lose by doing so. I don't think that's true, though. I think the OU is vulnerable and that we on the right can force it to represent its constituency much more faithfully by writing emails, making phone calls, etc. Do you agree? And if so, what would be the best method, in your opinion, of applying pressure on the OU the next time it issues a political statement that clearly tilts left? Yeah, I'm not sure any American Jewish organization really has that much clout or influence in Washington with political leaders. They do pursue relentlessly political correctness. None of what I wrote about uh, eight years ago was uh, uh, fabricated by me. In fact, some of the suggestions I made in 2014, a member of the cabinet said last week in Israel, last week, someone throwing rocks at danger. You have to shoot him. You don't coddle them. It doesn't matter what age. A 15-year-old who throws a stone can kill a Jew, maim him, take out an eye. So why would we try to coddle them? And the Pixons go back to uh, World War II and the British and how they dealt with Arabs. So none of it is new. Taken together, you need some effective means of dealing with an enemy that's both ruthless and uncivilized. By the way, I don't understand, and every government threatens they're going to change it, never does. Why is it that Hadar Golden's body and our own shul bodies are still in Gaza? And when we have to kill terrorists, we release the body to the family within a day or two. Why is that? Why do we have that asymmetry? That's not right. Look, I understand part of the reason from a geopolitical perspective. In fact, Netanyahu's primary approach to governance has always been Sheket. 
Let's do what we can to ensure that there's quiet. So if pressure in Gaza is going to bring rockets, that's going to upset the quiet. If holding on to their bodies, even though they hold on to our bodies, is going to produce rockets and riots, Sheket is better. So that's always been his policy because nobody likes riots in the streets and no one wants rockets from Gaza. But nonetheless, you reach a tipping point at which you stop being a sovereign nation and stop protecting your own interests and the lives of your people become secondary to the lives of the enemy. And that's inherently immoral. In terms of pressuring the OU, I mean, or RCA, or any of the alphabet soup Jewish organization, look, no one's going to stop buying M&Ms. So a boycott of the OU is not going to work. But I'm not sure they really carry any sway. You know, when organizations issue statements condemning terror in Israel, and now I saw condemning the settlers who went on a rampage in Khawara. It's as if they're trying to make a record in some court of public opinion. Does it influence anyone in Israel? I mean, no one that I know, and even the people I don't know, they wouldn't be impressed by. What does it really matter? It's just something for public consumption. And yeah, you're going to ask me if a Jewish organization would come out and say, uh, yes, we have to treat the Arabs with a, a strong hand. Will they be invited to the White House Hanukkah party? No. Will they be able to advance their own legislative initiatives? No. Will they be covered in the famous newspapers, the liberal newspapers of the day? No. So they issue these uh, mealy-mouthed, you know, general statements, platitudes that sound very good, but I don't think it really has any effect. And look, the fact is the AU does good things also. When they try to enter into politics, you're correct, it's almost always on the left. So when, for whatever reason, they have, because they're part of the president's conference, they have to issue these statements because they're told, if you don't, then we're going to look at you cross-eyed. So they do it, but I I don't take it that seriously. I still think it's a chutzpah, though. And from my time at the Jewish press, even though the Jewish press is very clearly right-wing, if we even got like two or three emails from people who were angry about something, we took it seriously because, honestly, the Jewish press, and I'm sure, therefore, many other Jewish organizations or businesses of that size get very, very little public feedback. So if even two or three emails actually has an effect, and I actually do think that if you even had five or ten emails or phone calls from the public when the OU does some of these kind of things, I think they would think twice and three times before they did it again. But no one says anything, really. Even on Twitter, you see there's like no responses. Right. So I, I could tell you they do get emails about these issues as they got about open orthodoxy. And, uh, you know, they issue sympathetic statements. And I think the heart's in the right place. But to actually do something about it, uh, it's not going to happen. I don't think Jewish organizations are really cut out for it, certainly not American Jewish organizations. They're just, I mean, look, the the galut, not to offend anybody, is basically survivalist mode. You hope to survive to the next generation or the generation after that, but it's not building on anything. The real building, the real growth is in the land of Israel. So as they're in survivalist mode, and I, I lived there for many years, of course, most of my life, so I'm not just being critical, I just, you know, try to be objective, in survivalist mode, you have to choose the causes. So they focus on bringing kosher food to people, and NCSY organization, Yachad, bringing uh, Jewish uh, values and service and culture. But in a political realm, look, what is their, not just the OU, but the obsession of many, many American Orthodox Jewish organizations now for, I don't know, decades to approve tuition tax credits to relieve the tuition burden in yeshiva 
education. Does anyone really believe that if tax, <laughs> tuition tax credits were implemented, that there is even one yeshiva that wouldn't raise tuition by the amount of that credit? But look, you have to do these things in order to tell the people, your supporters, that you're actually trying to do something, even though it's not going to have any effect. So a lot of it is posturing. So it's well-meaning posturing. I don't doubt their sincerity. And I have to tell you, it's not just about uh, the Orthodox organizations. I was in America in the rabbinate long enough and involved for time in Federation and APAC, etc., to tell you that I think almost everyone that I met in organizational leadership in America, even in the non-Orthodox world, is very sincere. They're often clueless, but they're very sincere about what they're trying to accomplish. And, on, and they love the Jewish people also. They don't know what's good for the Jewish people, but they do love the Jewish people. They do love Israel in a certain way. So they, they just don't know what to do, all right? So maybe the Orthodox should know what to do, and they should speak out more forcefully and more coherently, but the reality is their main focus is on other issues. Yeah, well, I would say at the very least, keep silent then. If, you know, stick to kosher and stick to the other things. Don't wade in on politics. But anyways, um, well, that my... One point, so you should know, because I was involved in this for many years. The dominant force in any Jewish organization is inertia. The easiest thing is to not say something. Let someone else say it. That's why there's a rabbinic organization. I won't mention which it is. They're always responding late to any uh, case or controversy. Late. After it's gone from the news cycle, they issue a statement either condemning or supporting, but it's totally irrelevant to the reality of the moment because the moment has passed. So therefore, what changes the inertia? If they'll get calls from two, three, four major donors or rabbis, or other leaders saying, how could you not have denounced this? How could you not have supported this? Then they'll issue the statement that's, you know, supportive of, uh, you know, on, on the left. You're right. You know, they're not going to criticize Biden. They were quick to cr- criticize Trump. They did praise Trump on occasion also, when it, you know, it was part of their agenda. Praising Biden, of course, for doing the obvious is uh, par for the course. Are they going to criticize him? Probably not, because then they will not be invited to the Hanukkah party. And, you know, that's a, that's a terrible price to pay. Before we continue, if you have a business or a service that you would like to advertise to the passionate right-wing listeners of The Elliot Resnick Show, in this very spot, smack in the middle of our weekly interview, please contact me via email, editor at 1versus450.com. Again, that's editor at 1vs450.com. Alternatively, you can message me on Facebook or Twitter. Okay, I have one and a half questions left. I want to ask you about modern orthodoxy because you recently criticized modern orthodox Jews for shying away from any Torah obligation or any Torah value that's politically incorrect. And you asked, do the modern orthodox have anything more compelling to share in the marketplace of ideas and values other than let's just all get along. And then you continued and you said, if not, then it's hard to see how or, or even why it should survive, it being modern orthodoxy. Can you elaborate on these comments? I mean, it's multifaceted, of course, because modern orthodoxy is declining in number with a certain percentage becoming more religious, even Haredi, neo-Hasidic, a certain percentage dropping out, and a percentage that's in the middle that just tries to transmit from one generation to the next those values. At its core, it has a product to sell. And I'll just quote Rabbi Rakefin in this context, what is modern orthodoxy but to be a Torah Jew in a Western milieu? That's what it is. 
But I think what modern orthodoxy does in its desire not to shut out the modern culture is that they embrace it as a value. And that's where they go wrong. Embracing as a value. Look, I like entertainment also, but I don't get my values from entertainment, nor do I necessarily think that because a particular actor, actress, writer, producer, director, politician says that the values of society have now officially changed and we must embrace what's been immoral, even depraved for thousands of years and is against the Torah. And now somehow we have to manipulate the Torah in order to accept that or we are bad, immoral people. So that's why I think they've gone off the rails a little and they should have a little self-confidence in the product that they have. Because if all modern orthodoxy is, is the embrace of modern culture and Western values while retaining the ritual aspects of Judaism, that is very hard to transmit to children. It's the value system which is going to produce the adherence and embrace of mitzvot. It's not the slavish following of the uh, ideas and principles of the political or religious left or the modern secular atheistic left. That's not going to sustain Jewish life. And that goes back, I think, almost a decade that I wrote a column, I think it was in the, Jew- it was in the Jewish press, called The Rise of the Orthoprax. The Orthoprax meaning those who practice mitzvot, but they don't really believe that the Torah is divine or true or mandatory or that its values have anything to say to religious Jews or to young Jews. So I think that's where they have gone uh, awry. And this goes back almost 10 years, if not more, that I wrote that. I'll tell you the context was so vivid to me. People were complaining that the New York Jets home opener was on Kol Nidre night. All right. How could it be? Even Orthodox Jews complain. And say, what are they talking about? Yom HaKippurim is coming. That's real. That's the Yom HaDin. That's the day of judgment for Jews. And you're bothered that you can't watch a football game? Like, what is that all about? It just didn't register with me. And that's what I realized. It's a movement. You take that, or it's at least a a substantial part of the modern Orthodox movement. So you take that uh, perspective on life and then transform it or uh, project it onto other areas of morality, culture, law, politics, etc. Then you have a movement that is uh, really uh, wandering about trying to find its way and not really able to have a coherent message that the next generation is going to accept. The best product that exists in the universe is the Torah that God gave us. God said, I gave you a good gift, all right? Don't abandon it. When we embrace the values of others, we're abandoning God's gift. When we turn our backs on God's values because we're afraid of what the times or the Washington Post, is going to say about us and our Torah, we're abandoning Jewish values. We're abandoning that Torah. We shouldn't be embarrassed of the Torah. This is the Torah that God gave us. Yeah, there's a way to convey it and teach it to people in a way that it's mikubal. The Torah is not a spade with which we dig, and it's also not a club with which we hit people over the heads. But the Torah is beautiful. It's open to everyone. It's something we should willingly embrace and teach and love and observe and preserve. And the way we do that is not by abandoning it or whittling it down or pretending some mitzvah no longer exists because the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, 
is telling us, ah, you know, the young people, they don't want to hear that anymore. No, no, they have to hear it. Right. And young people also are very much attracted to conviction. I mean, that's why leaving outside Judaism, I mean, Ayn Rand is still super popular among people till today. And uh, people like her. I was once reading a collection of essays by Henry David Thoreau, and the editor of the collection said what first attracted her to Henry David Thoreau, again, was his conviction. Young people are attracted to truth. They're not attracted to mealy-mouthed, whittled-down compromises. So. That's what it is. That's what it's saying. Her books were too long for me, but nonetheless, she has support. You know, her ideas, I'm familiar with her ideas. Yeah, no, she's uh, a little Her personal life was also in a little disarray. I don't think she's a role model to any extent. No, I but agree. nonetheless, you're correct that people do, especially young people, they, they want to believe in something. They're passionate and they're full of conviction and they want to better the world. God forbid they should want to better the world and exercise their passions in a way that tells them to turn their backs and renounce the Torah or repudiate even one letter or one verse of the Torah. That should not be. And we have the means to make sure it's not, as long as we're honest with them and ourselves. The last question is about you. I've heard people say over the years that successful American rabbis who move to Israel are often disappointed in that they expect to have as great an impact in Israel as they did in America, and yet they rarely do. You were a highly successful American rabbi who moved to Israel. What has your experience been like? To me, it's been absolutely wonderful. I have no complaints. But then again, it's my personality. You know, because I have no expectations of anyone, I'm, I'm very hard to disappoint. I'm very hard to, I don't get irritated in many things. But my personal experience has been only blissful. What can I say? Well, my children live here now. My grandchildren live here. I'm looking at my window now at the, the mountains of Binyamin. Beautiful sight. The sun is in the other direction. So you see the shadows here. It's just a, a beautiful land that God gave us as the tableau on which we're going to implement the Torah state. So I've been only, thank God, uh, successful. I do the same thing I did in America. I teach, I speak, I write, I lecture, and I don't think I don't have a balabatim. Not that I minded having balabatim. It was wonderful, but now I just get to teach Torah and address ideas, and thank God there's a receptive audience for it. I've been uh, published routinely in some of the organs here. So people respond to it. People walk up to me in the street here where I live in Shul and say, I just read this, just heard that. And you can have an influence. You'll be surprised, by the way, how easy it is to influence the society. I just wrote something two weeks ago and the editor called me and said, get someone to translate this into Hebrew. Because the Israelis need to hear this, not just the Anglos. So I've had articles that I wrote myself in Hebrew. I give shiurim and I speak in Hebrew also here in addition to English. So you have to be willing, I think, especially it's important for American rabbis to be part of the society. All right, I don't live in a purely Anglo-Jewish world. If you do that, then you're really limited and no one pays any attention to you. Uh, the fact is, I live in the mixed community, both religious and secular, and Anglos and Israelis, I have to tell you, very few of the Israelis know even a single controversy of my past. And they just take me as I am. They know I'm right-wing because they read about me in the paper. But to me, it's been like a, a new world, a refreshing world. Yes, certainly aspects of uh, American Jewish life and where I lived for so many years, 26 years in Teaneck, New Jersey, that I miss. I mean, at the top of the list, of course, are the members of uh, my old shul, B'nai Ashurim. There's no doubt about that. But in terms of being able to teach Torah 
and spread God's ideas and try to influence society, I think a rabbi has to be very focused on what he wants to accomplish. Expectations have to be different as well. You don't have a shul. You don't have a given forum. And for the most part, American rabbis who become pulpit rabbis, there are notable exceptions, but American rabbis who become pulpit rabbis of Israelis are usually not that successful. So you have to find other avenues for uh, the expression or transmission of one's Torah ideas. And thank God I found that. So to me, it's been the greatest blessing. You teach in your local shul or where do you teach? Local shul, a yeshiva here, a kolel here. I have a series that I give also on Zoom for an American audience uh, that you can access it through uh, either my WhatsApp or my website. All the shurim are there on Yutar as well, the shurim are put out. So, yeah, I'm all over. I'm invited uh, constantly. So, thank God. It's all, all good. And your website, RabbiPruzanski.com. RabbiPruzanski.com, correct. Yeah. All right, perfect. Thank you so very much for your time. I really appreciate it. El, it's good to see you again. It's good to talk to you again. Hope to see you next time on uh, this side of the pond. All right, that does it for us. If you like this show, please consider subscribing to it and leaving a generous rating and comment on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to read Rabbi Puzanski's new book about Pesach, look at the episode description where you'll find a link to it. Stay tuned for next week's episode, as well as a special announcement on Monday. Have a great day or night, depending on when you're listening to this episode.